have Lisa, half of the dynamic duo of two sober chicks, Julie and Lisa. And today I'm going to try something a little different. We're going to call it Four Sober Chicks. I've invited three very special guests on the show with me today, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, Dr. Harry M. Tebow. It looks like his name should be pronounced Ty Bout, but it's the Tebow Papers. These were first brought to my attention when I listened to Sobercast, and they did a, a series put on by another Alcoholics Anonymous member by the name of Astrid, and her home group is Primetime, which I absolutely love attending. And thanks to COVID, I get the opportunity to do that on a regular basis, even though they're in like LA and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. So thanks to Zoom and meetings being virtual now, it's kind of neat that I can attend meetings all around the world uh, without ever leaving the comfort of my own living room. So I appreciate that. And she was the first one to bring to my attention uh, Dr. Harry M. Tebow and the study of the uh, uh, Tebow papers from the Quarterly Journal of Studies on Alcohol. So it's an interesting mix of um, psychology and medicine and their understanding and learnings at the beginning of the uh, movement known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, he served on the board of trustees for AA, actually, from 1957 to 1966, and was chairman of the National Council on Alcoholism in 1950. So this is one of what I hope will be many segments on Two Sober Chicks, uh, a group discussion, as if you will, of the Tebow Papers, with my friends, Judy, Karen, and Sarah. Thanks for joining us, ladies. Karen, start us off with one of the readings today. Surrender versus compliance in therapy, with special reference to alcoholism. Since becoming a sideline observer of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, my approach to alcoholism has undergone an almost total reorientation. For the first time I saw what peace of mind means in achievement of sobriety, and I began to consider the emotional factors involved in a very, from a very different viewpoint. In AA meetings, the role of resentments was a recurrent theme. This seemed significant. Continuing this line of observation, I found that another enemy of sobriety was defiance, which Stillman had already described as defiant individuality, a major hallmark of the personality of alcoholics. Another significant emphasis in AA was humility and hitting bottom, completely new points of emphasis for me. It was clear that if the individual remained stiff-necked, he would continue to drink but I could not see why. Finally, the presence of an apparently unconquerable ego became evident. It was this ego which had to become humble. Then the role of hitting bottom, which means reaching a feeling of personal helplessness, began to be clear. It was this process that produced the ego and awareness of vulnerability, initiating the positive phase. In hitting bottom, the ego becomes tractable and is ready for humility. The conversion experience has stated. Judy, are you aware of who this is and what we're doing? Yeah? Okay. Hey, Karen. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to do it? Like Sarah just joined. Oh, Sarah's on. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, Sarah. Do you guys want to do it like um, a Friday night meeting where yeah. we, we can pause and, and talk? That's what I was thinking. Okay. So let's talk about the first paragraph that was read. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want to say, Lisa? 
Um, I'm looking for it. It was, I'm going back to the Silman, the Silman papers that he referenced. Um, cause it, that was really, really significant for me. It stood it out. It was for me. Well, it's because it was about the ego deflating. Yeah. Defiant individuality. Remember there were two things. And, and a baby ego. It wasn't baby. Immature ego. Is that it? I think it was an immature ego, but they also we were talking about the conversion experience, and that was also in the other paper. Remember? Yeah, that was a good one too. Who? So that was Harry Tebow, but Harry Tebow talked about a Silman. I wondered at first if that was a typo, and they meant Silkman, but I guess they meant. No, I thought I thought that's a person, a person's theory. Yeah, doctor, doctor Silman, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, so here it is. Defiant individuality and grandiosity. Oh, here it is. The cycle will go on repeating itself as long as the, as the defiance in the grandiosity continue to function with unimpaired vigor. Yeah, those were, that was a, a great... That story. was really good. Um, Defiance masquerades as a very real and reliable source of inner strength for the alcoholic who is self-confident. Nothing can happen to me because I can and do defy it. <laughs> yeah, so as I remember, the grandiosity was about we hit bottom and we come back in and we become grandiose again. And we have to consistently have the act of surrender. Yeah. To put us in a conversion state. It might be hard for these guys jumping in where we did. Okay. Um. It, no, it's not hard because um, I've, I've read them before. Okay. Okay. Then that's so, good. yeah. So, I mean, okay. I don't remember everything I've read. I don't remember but, but what not. I read last night, but it's, it's not new. Okay. Okay. Then that's important. And that uh, second paragraph, um, Finally, the presence of an apparently unconquerable ego became evident. It was this ego which had to become humble. So you have to surrender. You have to stop thinking that you can do it on your own and give up that ego. Totally agree. My ego is my own worst enemy. Always, yeah. Always so kicking it to the curb having to be ever mindful of that. Um, okay, I'll pick up with the next two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. What happens in the unconscious at the time of hitting bottom remained a mystery. The first elucidation came from a patient. Through psychotherapy, she was gradually losing the intractable ego structure. And finally, for rather obscure reasons, she had a minor conversion experience which brought her relative peace and quiet. During this phase, she began attending various churches in town. Mm. One Monday morning, she entered the office, her eyes shining and said at once, I know what happened to me. I heard it in a hymn yesterday. I surrendered when I had that experience. Guided by this clue, I realized that hitting bottom is ineffectual if not followed by surrender. Hitting bottom must produce a result, which is surrender. This, this makes me think of myself and lots of other people who I've met in the program 
who have bottom after bottom after bottom. And what happens is you come into the program, you start to do a few of the things that are suggested, you feel better, and you take that will back. And you start to say, well, I don't have to do all of this, and I don't have to do that. And I, 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 can, I got this now. I can handle this. I feel better now. I think that's my perspective on it. Anyway. Well, it's interesting that that, that line says hitting bottom must produce the result of uh, produce a result, which is surrender. But in fact, I don't believe that's true. Two skid row alcoholics, one will come into AA and one will not. Uh, does it mean that their bottoms are different? I think the surrender is the bottom. And it doesn't have to be a physical bottom for me it was an emotional bottom yeah yeah i'm sorry i just use that as the you know absolute rock bottom. Mm -hmm. like, yeah um but no absolutely but to me that this render is the emotional part because it's certainly not getting any material at that time or that yes so. that's true that's true um but a lot of us that came into the program with what is termed a high bottom um, you know, they weren't the skid row types. They still had the car in the garage and, and the house and the family inside that looked perfect from the outside. Um, but those people, some of them come in and they hit, I believe, an emotional bottom um, and get to the point where they can surrender. Others come in and they're not there yet. See, and I think the surrender is the bottom. Yes, I, I agree. I think surrender yeah. is a choice. Mm -hmm. I, I, and it like, because some people can come in with what other people might call a high bottom, where they still have everything, everything being maybe material things. It's materialistic stuff, yeah. Yeah, and respect, and, and they, they haven't suffered a divorce, they haven't lost people in their lives. Um, and those people can still repeatedly go out and then there are other people who can come in and they are the same they haven't lost any of those things but they get it and i think it's about a conscious choice you just decide hey i've looked at these two ways of living the way i was living and the way they're suggesting i live and when i try to follow those new principles a new way of thinking i feel better things are changing in my life the only thing i'm giving up is alcohol so maybe they've maybe they've started to discover that although they haven't lost any materialistic things, they have lost themselves. Mm. And so they have nowhere to turn, and that's where surrender comes in. Or just waking right? up and this is, a different life. This is, this is the emotional bottom. I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, because alcohol was but a symptom of something bigger. Right? You remove the alcohol and don't do the work and, and don't go through the whole surrender and you're a dry drunk. Well, you might as well drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, good to continue? Mm-hmm. Okay. Most of my ideas along these lines were incorporated in an article 
on the act of surrender in relation to the therapeutic process. I now wish to extend these thoughts a step further. The surrender concept has not generally been well received except by some AAs who recognize its validity in their own experiences. One or two psychiatrists have told me they are beginning to see the usefulness of the concept, but no one, to my knowledge, has yet come forward with a paper supporting the thesis of surrender out of his own observations. One reason for this lag is the resistance to the idea of surrender. It seems too completely defeatist. Mm. Were I writing the article now, I would change it in this respect so as to discuss the term surrender in linkage with other less to be shunned concepts, but those links were discovered only later. So he refers to the therapeutic process, which I assume is physical detox. And um, that's what the medical field, I believe, is still focused on. And to some extent, even the psychiatric field is, you know, we'll, we'll give you drugs, we'll take away alcohol, we'll detox your body. But um, a psychiatrist, unless they've actually been there and experienced it and can speak from experience, and then that doesn't make him or her any more qualified than anyone else in the program, um, they don't understand the surrender. How do you explain how do you explain surrender? I can't, I cannot um, explain, verbally explain my higher power. So if I cannot verbally explain my higher power to anyone, then how could I even begin to verbally, logically lay out in a plan, big explanation of surrender? It doesn't fit that medical model, which is black and white. And, and that's why I think the therapeutic process is the one that's accepted in um, healthcare today. And the whole surrender thing hasn't been um, accepted because it can't be explained. How can you split? How can you explain the fourth dimension? Surrender is the pathway to the fourth dimension. How do you explain that logically in black and white? I can't. So do you think that um, the therapeutic process is lacking, lacking the faith component? I think like the therapeutic process is black and white. And that the whole surrender, faith, belief, trust in a higher power is something that cannot be verbalized. And if you can't verbalize it, if you can't put it into black and white then it's not going to end up in a medical textbook. Okay. And, and I think that's where this whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous works, where doctors have failed in the past, and it talks about that in the big book, um, that the doctors were baffled. They didn't know how to treat these people. And then all of a sudden, one alcoholic talking to another, they can relate and they can get onto a plane, a different plane, I guess, um, whereby they can travel towards that ultimate goal, which would be surrender and, and living a more spiritual life. But if you can't explain something logically in black and white, 
then it's very difficult to use it in any kind of model. And, and maybe that's why organized religion has so many rules because rules are black and white. So I, I love what Judy said because it would totally um, reminds me, Lisa, of what Luke said to you and what the podcast last night said. Um, you know, it, the, when, you, when you say to, to Judy, Lisa, um, sort of mean it lacks you're cutting out a bit. Sarah, talk put, put your earpods in. Well, if you could understand, they are in. They are, in? are in. Okay. Yeah, you're just cutting out. Maybe you're in a bad Wi-Fi area. Oh. We missed half of what you said. Okay. No. I'm cutting out. Yeah. Do you have your hand over the microphone? Is the internet her or herself? Oh, she's outside. Are, are you at home? Like, are you in your house? Because you're frozen on the screen right now. Yeah, she's outside. Yeah, it's her. It's your Wi-Fi connection. There she, she goes. Yeah, she goes. Yeah. No, it's done. She'll Not be back. I think she had something, something good to say. I think so. She'll come back in. She'll come back in. She'll realize that it's, it's the signal. She probably went outside of her house for privacy and lost the Wi-Fi that's inside her house. I'll let her back in if she comes back in. Oh, that's nice of you. <laughs> anyway, does, any, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you have anything else? I also, well, I, well, I also know that, you know, it wasn't, there was, wasn't the doctors necessarily their lack of um, knowledge. There was the three components, right? Which is the physical, emotional, and the spiritual. And, you know, it wasn't till the third piece, which was the spiritual was added because they knew the emotional, the, the, the mental, sorry, the mental obsession, um, the physical component, that's what the doctors were treating. What they weren't treating was a spiritual component. And it wasn't until Bill and Bob talked that was kind of solidified for the program. You know, up to then they were doing a one-two dance. I've got it. I'm feeling great. I go out and all that. And then the next thing you know, I think I may get six months and I drink again. You know, he couldn't stay, I don't think he lasted that long, but he couldn't stay stopped. I think you both basically said the same thing. Yes. Just in different ways. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, in the article on surrender, I said, one fact must be kept in mind, namely the need to distinguish between submission and surrender. In submission, an individual accepts reality consciously but not unconsciously. He accepts as a practical fact that he cannot at that moment conquer reality, but lurking in his unconsciousness is the feeling there'll come a day, which implies no real acceptance and demonstrates conclusively that the struggle is still going on. With submission, which at best is a superficial yielding, tension continues. When on the other hand, the ability to accept reality functions on the unconscious level, there is no residual battle and relaxation ensues 
with freedom from strain and conflict. In fact, it is perfectly possible to ascertain to what extent the acceptance of reality is on the unconscious level by the degree of relaxation which develops. The greater the relaxation, the greater is the inner acceptance of reality. Sorry, Lisa, where are you? The top of the page 13. The first paragraph. That's it. You can continue or someone can share if they want. Oh, sorry, I, I missed it all. I couldn't find it, so I'm just quickly reading. Oh, it's my doctor. I'm sorry. I have okay. to go. All right. We'll pause. Hello? Mute your mic. Yes, speaking. Mute your mic. You can mute her. Oh, there she goes. Okay. Yeah, she's I'm good. That out. I don't often host. Um, no, neither do I. Yeah. The, the, um, to me, that's just like the highlight of this whole article is talking about the difference between um, surrender and submission. So when I first came into this program, I had submission and compliance. I was complying yep. with the rules and the things that they were suggesting because I'd suffered some very hard con um, consequences in my life. But your ego was still front and center. Right. And I submitted because there was a payoff. If I submit and do the things that you say I should do, then I'm going to get the things that I want. And I started to see evidence of that. And the moment I started to see evidence of that, my ego took over and said, great, good. I got it from here. Thanks, guys. I don't need this anymore. Yep. And the cycle continued. And then the yes. bottom waiting for me once again. Right. So the ego can see baby steps towards improvement, um, you know, and as soon as it sees that, I mean, it's, it's a strong bugger and it steps right into the forefront. And until you can recognize what's happening and say, Oh, this is happening again, again. and kick it back to the curb. Yeah. But initially you don't recognize that that's what ha is happening. At least it didn't for me. It took me a while before I could recognize it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do you surrender? And then are you able to recognize it? Or do you start recognizing it and then you surrender? Yeah. Well, I remember when we were talking um, about, you know, you've got several years of sobriety under your belt and then you start questioning, am I really an alcoholic? And to me, that, that line perfectly describes that lurking in his unconscious is the feeling there'll come a day you know and until we that's really true. accept um you know just because i don't drink anymore doesn't mean i'm not an alcoholic it no. just means that i'm not putting that substance in my body but the old ideas and thinking and behavior is still there unless i continue to do the work and to me that's the surrender part of it i'm surrendering my ego and i have to on a daily basis, I have to surrender my ego. I have to turn that will over all the time. Um, and it, it becomes quite quickly apparent, usually to other people first, and then later to myself, <laughs> when my ego is starting to take over, come back into the, into the playing field. Karen, you're back, welcome back. Yes, thank you. 
But I know myself, I didn't even recognize that my ego was my own worst enemy. Oh, hi, Lydia. Until um, I'd had some time. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, I'd had some time and had gone to meetings and kept hearing people say, you know, my ego, my ego, my ego, my will, self-will versus, you know, the will of my higher power. Um, for me, and maybe I've just got like a really dense head. <laughs> it, it took some time before I could even see that my ego was my own worst enemy. Because I, I, I didn't understand that. And, and I know Wendy, my sponsee, was surprised that she even had an ego, a strong ego, because she thought, you know, she was a people pleaser and did things, um, did everything for everybody else. And she didn't have an ego. And it wasn't until, you know, she heard me and others talk about what a, an ego really is did she was she able to say oh yeah like this is this is something that's had a huge impact on me and will continue to have a huge impact on me if i don't do something about it if i don't recognize it if i don't you know keep my eyes open wide enough on a daily basis 24 7 to watch for it Because I think until you can really understand, well, for me anyway, until I really understood how much damage that thing was doing, I wasn't in a position to surrender. Because I thought I could do it myself. So until you see the negative consequences, are you going to be able to surrender? I don't know. And Sarah, welcome back. Go ahead. Oh, so I like what Judy said again. So you see the negative consequences. That's great. Um, what I loved that Luke said, that um, I also heard in the podcast just now, you guys. God is infinite. God is finite. Surrender is infinite. Surrender is finite. You can't feel it like love, like any spiritual um, energy. And as Luke told Lisa, which I love and I keep hearing in podcasts, if you could understand God and understand that whole um, fourth dimension, quantum physics, chemical exchange, whatever you want to call it, then we wouldn't need this form of spiritual injection to stay well. And so surrender is almost like, okay, doing it my way, Whoa, let's hope there's a God because if I can't do it my way and it's not working and I don't like the AA way or anything, God, hope, let's hope there's a higher power or some other form because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. So surrender has to be, okay, let go, let the universe, let every angel fall on my shoulder and uh, willingly ask for the help of that embodied feeling. So that was my piece. All right, much better audio. Welcome back. 
Thank um, you. Okay, so we have eight minutes left because I have the free version of Zoom. So we'll see if it kicks us out. If it does, just come back into the meeting and I'll, I'll start it up again. I'm going to continue on with the reading and then if anyone has anything to say, just jump in and stop me. But I'll read a couple more paragraphs. Understanding acceptance. In that paragraph, the words accept and acceptance are each used three times. I saw at the time that surrender leads to acceptance. What I failed to see and emphasize was the very important relationship between surrender and the capacity for acceptance. Amen. Yeah. I propose therefore first to consider acceptance as a human capacity and second to discuss the blocks to the development of acceptance. The importance of 61 acceptance, 61, that must be a typo, is widely recognized, although often only by indirection. Sometimes the necessity for acceptance is bluntly stated, as in Grayson's recent article on the role of acceptance in physical rehabilitation. Grayson reports his discovery that the individual who needs rehabilitation remains a poor prospect until he finally accepts his need for the rehabilitating procedures. More often, the concept of acceptance is dragged in by the heels with little or no recognition that acceptance itself is a major psychological step. Judy, I think that's kind of talking about what you were talking about earlier. Like the medical model is basically focused on the, the physical attribute of drying out, right? Yeah. I mean, that's how they treat it. Medically, that's how they treat it because it's very black and white. Yeah. And then just yep. uh, two recent right. illustrations are worthy of mention. In a summarization article on Alcoholics Anonymous in the Connecticut Review on Alcoholism, the following statements appear. Quote, he does not have to fight against ideas which come from this group. He can accept them. End quote. Thus, the idea that he is an alcoholic is acceptable when coming from this group. They need to avoid the first drink is accepted. Certainly, the need for acceptance is unequivocally stated. And the following statement is from Hubie's book. The man who is normal can accept the guidance of reason, reality, and common sense. The word accept is scattered throughout the pages of the book, but the question of acceptance is never raised, as if it were something that needs no discussion. The first of the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 steps reads, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. The second word is admitted, which in many ways is a blood brother of acceptance, although many AA meeting has been devoted to quibbling about the difference between admit and accept. Time and again, slips are explained on the basis that the one who slips has not truly accepted his alcoholism. Anybody wanna jump in or shall I just continue? All right, we can go back at any time. I think Karen might also be on a call and we lost Sarah again. The word acceptance thus appears quite regularly in speech and writing, but never is there much discussion of how acceptance comes about. The usual explanation is that if the doctor is accepting, the patient will be so too. In case of failure, the therapist is held responsible, just as parents are for their children. 
To suppose that acceptance is caught by contagion is a, is a pretty thought. It is not, however, likely to stimulate much understanding of individual psychodynamics. It is not enough merely to point the finger elsewhere. I like that. I don't know. I, I think uh, acceptance can be contagious, just like gratitude can be contagious, right? When I look around at AA meetings and I see a change in somebody and one of the things they're demonstrating is an acceptance that they're an alcoholic and that they needed to change their old ideas and thinking. And one of the changes that they've made is going from being um, pessimistic, pessimistic and self-pitying to being uh, accepting and grateful for, for their lot. Um, to me, I did catch that. I did catch that from other people. I didn't have that before. I didn't come up with it on my own. Um, it was demonstrated to me by people who used to drink like I drank and behave like I behaved and, um, and then changed their behavior. So. I, I agree, Lisa. It's, I think, really important to connect and to listen with other alcoholics. And that's why it's so important to go to meetings because that's where you hear about things that allow you or give you the information to accept it yourself. Um, you know, most of us or many of us, when we come into this program, our definition of the alcoholic is this good road living under the bridge or somebody that's way worse than us. Um, no matter what, you know, stage you came in at. Um, and I think one of the ways that you do evolve towards being able to accept is through what you hear and what you identify with. And you're not going to hear any of that stuff outside of the rooms. That's where you hear it, right? Your doctor's not going to be able to tell you that. Your psychiatrist isn't going to be, well, that's a doctor, isn't going to be able to tell you that. Your psychologist isn't going to be able to tell you that. No therapist, unless they've been there, is going to be able to speak to you um, in a way that you can relate. And that's why in the 12th step, um, you know, we, we share our own personal experiences with others. So it's, it's, um, Oh, what's it called? Acceptance rather than compliance? No. No, because I think initially you do start off. The, the 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 road to acceptance is is for me anyway was compliance. Yeah, okay, I'll do what you're telling me to do. Even though I don't believe it. <laughs> even even though I don't believe it, but as I go to meetings and as I listen to other people and I look around and I think, oh, well, she's not like me and he's not like me. If if I continue with that attitude, I'm not going to hear what they're really saying. But if I go with an open mind and listen to what they're saying, I can immediately identify um, those feelings. So again, it gets away from black and white and more into mental and metaphysical. Um, and it's identification 
with what you're hearing. I agree with all of that. It's in the meetings that we hear this stuff. But you know what? You also have to be open when you go in to begin with. Well, and that's, that I, that's what I was saying earlier in the conversation is I can go in and I can look at, you know, the person beside me, the person on the other side of me, the person in front of me, the person behind me. And do they look like me? Do they talk like me? Do they live on the same street as me? Well, with the exception of Sarah, no. Um, <laughs> and, and it's only so, so if I go in with that attitude where, you know, these people are not like me, um, then I'm not going to hear what I, what they're saying. And if I can't hear what they're saying, then I won't be able to identify with what they're saying. So well, you've got to go in with an open mind. Yeah. And the opposite is that is the terminal uniqueness, you know, which keeps me separate from you so that I don't identify. Like, you know, I, I used to use it as a weapon, no matter where I went, you know, it's like, okay, so well, I'm gay, you're straight. And it's like, okay, so we're both gay, but you're a downtown gay and I'm a Scarborough gay, you know, type of stuff. Like no matter what, you can separate yourself. So, you know, it, it's, it goes back to surrender. You know, that first thing, the, um, going back to our hitting bottom and the surrender, you know, in order to come through and have that open mind, you first have to have surrendered. Mm -hmm. Well, no, do you? I do. I think so. My experience was different. Actually, I'm sitting there thinking about it. People that are told that they have to go and things like that. It comes through osmosis. Sometimes they haven't surrendered yet. So yeah, no, I, I, I'm there. Because when I came into the program, I thought that I drank too much, but I didn't think I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had spent time um, listening and doing a lot of the work that I was even able to surrender or admit or identify. Yep. No, as soon as I said it, I realized, yeah, there's lots of scenarios where that's not necessarily true. So, and, and that's a big word, identify. I do hear what you're saying, though, Karen. I think typically, more or less, um, I don't know, high bottom, low bottom. But for me, um, also identifying, like, it sounds ridiculous, but going to Florida at a gated community and hearing people that are alcoholic who don't live under a bridge, I'm like, okay. Mm. Uh, cause uh, what kept me set for a long time was the social construct that an alcoholic lives under a bridge. Right. You know, you hear those podcasts, the brown paper bag. Um, cause I hadn't lost enough. How much is enough? My soul, you think it'd be enough, but, um, I was not on the street. I had a car. I had a, I, you know what I mean? Like my, you, you can say I lost my family. I didn't lose my family. I chose to go away. No one can, as they say, you can parent. As an alcoholic, you can parent with a broken leg. I mean, it's a self-professed situation until you've lost custody in your house. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting there, eh? That that little like thank God, and that's why I have no anonymity because um, I want the word out that this mental illness is okay. It's a thinking problem. Drinking was merely the solution. Um, because it, it, I need, I hope it helps the next person who is, is, who is as entitled as I thought I was and 
live that way that know that there's help that you you can also not be alcoholic you can um and you can also have a problem with alcohol and not necessarily be alcoholic and so geez i uh, want the world to know that it's okay because this legal substance called alcohol causes so much damage and strife and there's help so that's my two cents based on my life now i'm not a doctor and i'm not going to lose my profession around it so i understand why people have anonymity i try to now practice as i said in the um, drop the rock anonymity in all my actions which i parallel with humility shoveling my neighbors lawn. i'm not going to tell them i shoveled it um, I try to be humble in all my affairs that, uh, however, I really, I was asked the other day if I wanted a glass of wine, it never came to it, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to tell this little friend of Tessa's mom, this mom thinks I'm great. I'm older than her. No, I don't drink. I'm a recover. There's the people that aren't in our program. I would say recovered alcoholic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they would be like, great, you're driving my daughter. But I'm happy to say to her, yeah, someone like me. And you know, my kids go to great schools and whatnot. Yeah, I cannot drink alcohol safely. I have, an, uh, I have alcoholism if I was to drink. Today, I don't drink. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into it with her. But versus saying, no, thank you. I don't want one. I want, it, I want them to know that normal people like me can function. And yeah, I have this disease that the world looks down upon. I think that's what provides hope for so many people when they come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, because they see a whole bunch of people who are, are saying, hey, I'm an alcoholic just like you. And when you're new and you're looking at other people in, who've been in the rooms for a while and have been following the 12 steps, you go, no way. You can't be yeah. an alcoholic. What are, what are they on now? <laughs> yeah, right? Like they hear, like my, my son's home and this one woman who runs the PTA, you're at Berkeley University? So that's like, I know she's best friends with this other mom. Uh, is this anonymity? Is this humbleness? No, it's just totally ego. But it's also to say, for those that have alcoholism and the whole secret around it, yes, I am an alcoholic and I am well today and there's help. Hope. Yes, there's a hope. There's help and there's hope. You can get better. And uh, I didn't lose everything and I didn't go under a bridge. Um, because it came to my awareness through AA at a gated community, I'm like, wow, doctors are alcoholics? Hmm. As to use Judy's point, I could identify. And you know what's really cool about that is Sarah's talking about a gated community, and I got sober in one room. So people, <laughs> people from all different walks of life. Uh, also come together. You know, I like that that line um, from our program, which talks about uh, we are much like um, the group of people on an ocean liner who survived, you know, the shipwreck, the tragedy, um, from steerage to captain's table. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter our background before this. We have a common bond because we've survived this great um, disease. No, and, and you're right. I'm exaggerating. I got sober and it made me feel good sitting at the library table beside Phil, who's a lawyer. I'm like, thank you for sharing with me what you do. Um, meeting Phil's sponsor at the time, Derek, who was a lawyer. Um, I was so sick and untreated. That was important for me to know that. 
So I, I am so far behind you, Sarah, on anonymity. Um, I will freely talk about my alcoholism within the rooms, but outside of the rooms, I literally have a very small handful of people that know that I am. Nobody down in Mexico knows other than the people that I go to meetings with. Um, um, my brothers and my, my sisters don't know. Uh, nobody in my family knows. I haven't, nobody. Um, one friend knows. One girlfriend outside of the program knows. And I protect my anonymity with a suit of armor. And if I'm going to be honest about it, it's because I feel there's still a stigma attached to it. And my ego is preventing me from basically coming out. So and admitting. The word, so the word shame, would that be an appropriate word? Absolutely. So let me get this. It was okay for them to see you drunk, but not sober. Just, 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 um, just a weird thing we do, the rationalization, right? <laughs> yes. Because it's socially acceptable to be smashed at a dinner table and make no sense, but to admit you have a problem with this drug. Well, no, see, no, I, no, but I'm so controlled that people didn't see no. me that way in fact when when i first came into the program i i went to my first meeting when my husband always was away traveling and he came home on the weekend and the next week i monday night i went to go out the door and he said where are you going and i said to a meeting and he said what kind of meeting and i said oh a meeting at a church and he said what for and i said um for alcoholics anonymous and he looked at me and he said why hmm. So I, I, I was a great actress and a pretty, you know, controlled it pretty well. So do you think those that are close to you have seen a change? So perhaps you felt controlled and whatnot, but do you feel people see a change in you? Um, and that's when I feel you could say, actually, I didn't do it. I don't know. Alcoholics Anonymous did it. I don't know. Where did you go okay. today, Judy? Yes. <laughs> I know. There's there's been a, a huge change. change. Yeah. Sorry, and, where did you go today? That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> <laughs> this this might be on the internet, right? So uh <laughs> as I, well you you can say podcast. it because because um Judy I can't right now. Judy went to a relative's place who she normally has great difficulty being around. Oh, I know. Yeah, got it. Okay. Because the person in question doesn't yeah. behave. But I can't really way. talk about it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I got it. So she doesn't behave the way you want her to. And um, Well, you got that one right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, if only... And you went. Yeah, if only people would behave the way we want them to. <laughs> then then it would be the directors. That's right. That's why I wanted the director and the star. That's the role oh, I wanted. You have no idea how many times Lisa has told me to read pages 63 and 64 around this. 
Oh, fuck, the woman showed me 69 today. I'm like, can I perform it instead? <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I'm not into that. That could be your payoff, Sarah. That could be your reward after you finish putting uh, pen to paper, my friend. Pen okay, to back paper. Back to Judy. Hey, back to Judy. <laughs> you piped in. Listen, I think this is a good time to jump in with these other paragraphs. Okay. <laughs> there is a need, therefore, to discuss the dynamics of acceptance in the individual. Sorry, Lisa, where are you? I, I'm a visual oh, person. Top of page 14. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, acceptance appears to be a state of mind in which the individual accepts rather than rejects or resists Judy. Um, he is able to take things in, to go along with, to cooperate, to be receptive. Contrary-wise... <laughs> He is not argumentative, quarrelsome, irritable, or contentious. For the time being, at any rate, mm. hostile, negative, aggressive elements are in abeyance. And we have a much pleasanter human being to deal with. Acceptance as a state of mind has many highly admirable qualities as well as useful ones. Some measures of it uh, is greatly to be desired. Its attainment as an inner state of mind is never easy. And that's when my so I would jump in and say, uh, well, is your way any easier? Because I would always be in, I was very argumentative, very hostile, very negative, <laughs> very aggressive, contentious, quarrelsome. Are you describing me, Lisa? <laughs> no, I was describing myself. But, but in hey, regards to the family individual and anonymity and everything you're talking of, it's what it's when someone would say that was nice you came today or you did something today someone who you haven't openly admitted not everyone has to understand everyone has to, everyone has a different journey in the depth of degree of alcoholism like yes it um, we have an allergy and you have now admit, admitted that but you can also offer to people um yeah, you know what? I've decided to live the rest of my life sober just one day at a time, or I've decided not to, st I've stopped drinking, so I'm less irritable, I'm not tired, and I'm healthier. I'm and I say curious. all that. I say yeah, all that, so, and so I'm comfortable think, with that. Yeah, and I think that is also a way of showing people, um, you too could have what I have. I've got great skin, which you do, you're in shape, and like, I don't know. That, what's wrong with saying that without diving into the other, you know? Yeah. There's nothing, uh, I nothing's think wrong. I know you weren't saying wrong. I just mean like that's to me a part that's also an omission. You know, it's not like, no, I'm not going to just drink tonight. It's like people know you no longer drink. Yes, they do. Yeah. So you, prefer yes, they do know lifestyle. that. And so that's, that's a lifestyle choice and it's really none of their business as to why. Um, however, um, it's serving you, and if they want what you've got, it's like, actually, maybe I'll try that. I've seen lots of people in my life who go on the wagon lots because they're like, I want to be like, not even me, like my son Cam. He influences a lot of his friends because he doesn't party, and it's great. So, yeah. But, Sarah, I'd like to kind of say that, okay, as a gay woman, you know, I had, for many years I had a dirty little secret, and it was being gay. 
And, you know, it's no different than the times when I have felt ashamed and embarrassed of being an alcoholic. I have a dirty little secret. And it's not that I need to go up there and tell everybody. It's not about that. It's about how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I feel that way. Yeah, I feel exactly. that way. Yes. And I yeah, feel that I was so pleased and proud. Oh, my God. You should have seen me before. I'm a great A person now. Well, that's not okay either. You know, it's the opposite. But it's about that dirty little secret. So, you know, we all have the when we choose not to tell like I don't say anything at work because there's a lot of stigma around alcoholism and running around with a gun there's a reason for that right so I, that. It's, it's not I wonder why they have an issue anyway um yeah you know, that's it's, ridiculous no it's, and it's so not, yeah that's I but think it's the same stuff yeah but if yeah, you don't feel machine, good because, duty, then that's yeah. that's where you gotta you got to look at that. I agree. Right, Karen. It's all about the shame. Yeah. So when you decide yeah. not to tell somebody it's because of privacy or if it's because of shame. If it's because of shame, then there's work there to be done. Because you know what? We, you've never accepted your alcoholism to accept you as the alcoholic. There, but it's not there. Whoa, wait, the let me write that down. It's, it's, I want to write there, that down. Of God. It's there, but for the grace of God, go I. You and me are no different when I step over you. You are yes. and and you know what you nailed it. It's I am not sharing that information because of shame, not because of privacy. Privacy you I bow before you know. no one. Yeah, that's good. Shame. Karen, when's your book coming out? <laughs> what book? Oh, you mean my that book that I'm reading? God only knows. <laughs> your words of wisdom. But what what was that line? We are not alcoholic when we're this or we're that. I got to write that down. It was so good. She probably forgets. I have no idea. I know. I, mean, I, I do that too all the time. Sarah says, what did you say? What did you say? I don't know. I can't okay, remember. Yeah, you said we are not what we are unless we're alcoholically what we're alcoholic. Oh, God, it was so good. Okay. You know, oh, hey, hey, thank you. But I always look at it this way. If we're meant to know it and remember it and our higher power has that in our life, then we'll remember it. <laughs> and if there not, you go. There's another one, Sarah. Write that down. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing that down. Erin, can you repeat that? <laughs> you can also listen to this podcast. There's a repetition. <laughs> No, that's a key. That's key. If it's shame or if it's for, you know, logical privacy. And there's a big privacy. difference. Yeah. Yeah. They're two that's totally big. different that, sides so of the that, fence. Yeah. What, See how we took this time to look at that? We made it all about like, you, Judy. Well, because the world revolves around me, doesn't it? There we go. Yes. But, but in fairness, if you don't feel safe around certain people, yeah. then I mean, right? But if there's no shame, and your social circle today is pretty small, and you're not going to lose your job, um, then it's like, you know what? Do I really care what they think? Um, Versus oh, at the expense of your shame. I, you know, I like to sit there and say, I don't fuck care what you think about me. And that feels really great. But I'll tell you something. If you reject me, you block me. Oh, my God, there's a little girl inside of me. This is <laughs> So I do care. I got to write you another letter. And that's, that's somebody with over 30 years sobriety saying that. So that's a good yeah. sign to do that our character. So you're a human. Good sign will always be a little sick and worse. Right. So, so you're telling me, Karen, don't count on it anytime soon. 
One day at a time, Judy. I'll, I'll, I'll be dead before I'm ready to go without shame. We are all, we are all uh, you know, works in progress. Let's yes. finish with this last paragraph. Okay. Um, Lisa's trying to get to the next uh, for, uh, perfect cutoff point, aren't you? I just think, oh, it's been great. It's been a great discussion. No, but it, it, I, I, I want to just say, my situation with that mom was shame. Mm. And thank you, Judy. That's what came up for me. And I never, and thank you, Karen. I couldn't articulate it. Why did I give her shame? It's shame. And it's like, no, I can't be, I can't, bat, I have to own this. And you don't so anyway, go, go on. And you yeah. don't have to go that deep into detail either. Yeah. Um, people offer me a drink no. and I just say, no thanks. But it's, and, not and, about, it's not about how we react to the drink at all. It's about standing tall in front of somebody, being able to say, I'm an alcoholic in my own mind and stand proud and look myself in the eye. It's That's humility. I tell them or not. It's, That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, you know it's humility. Different. Humility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. But it's also pride in a, in a, in a, in a good way. Not false pride, mm -hmm. not pride. To, remember. No, but it's I'm, like, it's okay. I got sick and you too could get sick. I wasn't, it's not quantity, right? It's all, it's, I wasn't drinking 26ers. So it's, uh, and if they want to ask more about it, I can say, yeah, you too. I mean, she's talking about having coffee and bourbon while her kids are doing Christmas festivities. Like she might one day, she might get spared the 16 years of utter hell because as they said yesterday's podcast, which is amazing, like, are you willing to stand up and help the next struggling alcoholic? Like, can I stand there and humbly and shamelessly say, yeah, I got sick from that crap you're drinking in your coffee. Watch it, it's a subtle foe, man and work on that fourth, eighth, and ninth, and you will get there. You know what? I just, I just thought of something. Um, and then we'll let Lisa go on to do that last paragraph because she's, I can tell she's getting a little anxious. Um, I have no problem sharing that information with somebody if I think that they could benefit from being in the program. We'll never know. I, you're right. I will never know. Or I'm standing but, in front of them. But um, they could have a friend that's sick. They could. They could. But I guess I just don't share that. Don't feel comfortable sharing that information openly, unless unless there's a reason for it and I have to be able to see that reason. So I did share openly with my girlfriend, Suzanne down in Cabo, who is not in the program because her husband is an alcoholic. He didn't drink for 10 years, but he doesn't go to AA and um, she basically kicked him out and he had to fly home to California and she confided in me. Great. And so I said to her, I said, well, Suzanne, you know, I actually um, go to AA meetings down here and I think Mike could really benefit. So I was willing to be vulnerable and humble in that situation because I thought that maybe um, my friend Suzanne and her husband Mike might be able to benefit from it. But for others where I don't see the immediate or the direct benefit, 
and doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just I'm not seeing that they have a problem with alcohol or anything like that. Um, then I will be very, very reluctant to share or to break my anonymity. And with family members, I would probably uh, feel more comfortable sharing it with my brother than my sister, because I think my sister would use it against me. My brother wouldn't. So... I'd like to see a time and place when you are able to see that it can't be used against you. Yes. And, and, and you that's, know? and, and that's why I say, you know what, I might be dead before then, but <laughs> you know, I, I got a lot We're of learning to do. Work in progress. I, 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 I'm a work in progress and I got a lot of learning to do because I'm not there yet. I'm not even close. Think about that moment. Think about that line for a moment. I would like to see a time come when me being an alcoholic could not be used against me. Tell me about your life today, where you're at today, and how you behave today because you are an alcoholic in recovery who's working on the 12 steps, who's living a different, better life. How could that possibly be used against you? Just think about that phrase. You don't have to answer right now. But that's what jumped into my head. It could possibly be used against me if I hold on to the whole shame thing. That's how it could possibly be used against me. Oh, did you know that Judy's an alcoholic? <gasps> that's how it could be used against me. Because I'm still holding on to the shame thing. Yeah. But that's because you're, that's you're holding on to the past. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a problem of my own making. So speaking of acceptance, most people regard... <laughs> <laughs> non-acceptance, yes. Regard non-acceptance as a sign of willful refusal. This bypasses all current knowledge of the unconscious elements in resistance and willpower. Others, better informed about those attributes, avoid the use of such a phrase as willful refusal. They know that it is largely unconscious attitudes and feelings that determine the conscious thinking, and hence do not suppose that resistance can be given up by an act of will on the part of the conscious mind. That's interesting as it ties into all the things we've been talking about, about feelings of shame. Well, I think willful refusal is another word or another two words for ego. Mm. Yes, it is. I'm going to write that in. Ego. Well, ladies, on that note, I'm going to end the taping portion of our discussion on uh, some of the Tebow papers. I'd like to thank uh, my special guests today, Judy, Karen, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I think we'll do this again sometime. This has been really fun now that I've learned how to do this with um, a recording. So thanks a lot for joining me on one, two, three, four Sober Chicks today. I'm Lisa. <laughs>